This week on Myths and Legends, we're in Indian folklore, with a story about how doing jobs for that sinister-looking stranger in a cemetery might be a good idea for once. The creature this week is a kangaroo dog with deadly flatulence. This is Myths and Legends, episode 183, Revenant. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes from an 11th century work, originally written in Sanskrit, though, as usual, the original is thought to be much older. That's just when it was put down to paper. Apparently, it is super popular in India, and a number of people have reached out recommending it to me. As usual, there are many versions, with many of the details being very different between them, even down to the main character's name. I don't want to give too much away at the start. So, for some context, we're possibly in the first century AD, with a legendary emperor of ancient India. And he has a monkey. Hey, check it out. I got a monkey, the king said to his treasurer. The treasurer looked down at the animal. Okay, he'll bite, but hope the monkey doesn't. Who gave you a monkey? The king shrugged. It just wandered in here yesterday. The treasurer nodded. Okay, then this thing's absolutely going to bite. He's going to go stand over there. The king laughed and told him to relax. The monkey was trained. It escaped from its old master or something. It was cool. Here he comes, the fruit guy. Every day, for the last 10 years, a beggar had come into the hall of the king with fruit. Oh, look, the king understood that for a beggar to give fruit to him, that was a big deal for the beggar. So every day, the king made a show of accepting the fruit, marveling at the gift, and then telling the superintendent of his treasury to take such a marvelous treasure back to the vault. And they did the same thing that day, putting on a show which had good intentions, but was likely pretty condescending to the beggar, who seemed to know that the fruit was a humble gift for a king. The beggar bowed low and left the room. As the treasurer was headed out with the fruit, though, something out of the ordinary happened. The monkey, spotting the fruit, scurried over, grabbed the fruit in the treasurer's hand, and bared his teeth, while the treasurer tried to maintain the hold on the fruit. Yeah, you Better let him just have it, the king said, waving to the next mendicant. I'm actually not sure if he's a biter, and besides, it's just fruit. The treasurer let go, and the fruit went flying across the room. The treasurer was wiping his hand after touching the beggar's fruit, as he had done every day for the last ten years. The king shrugged. He'd get a servant in here to clean up the fruit. What trash did the treasurer put the daily fruit in? Did they, like, compost or... The treasurer shook his head. He didn't throw the fruit away. The king cocked his head. All right, so what did the treasurer do with the fruit every day for 10 years? The treasurer chuckled nervously. He did what the king told him to do. He put the fruit in the vault. He just tossed them in the window. The king didn't actually let him in the vault. The king couldn't really believe what he was hearing, like understand context. 
when he said put the fruit in the treasury, that was a show for the beggar. He didn't mean to actually put the fruit in the treasury. The treasurer held up his hands. Okay, those were direct orders from his ancient world king. People had died for way, way less. The king took a deep breath. So, in his treasury, there was 10 years worth of rotting fruit? The treasurer said that when the king put it like that, it kind of sounded bad. Then, a gasp went up from the assembled supplicants. It was the monkey. Well, not the monkey, but what the monkey had found. When the fruit hit the wall, after it flew from the treasurer's hand, it burst open. The monkey chowed down on the actual fruit, picking his way around the item at the center. That item wasn't a pit, but a giant emerald. The king ordered everyone back and picked up the gemstone himself, cleaning it off and inspecting it. It was the most beautiful gemstone he had ever seen, and as an ancient world king, he had seen a lot of gemstones. He turned to his treasurer. Go check the vault. You, uh really played the long game with that fruit thing, the king said to the smirking beggar the next day, a pile of recently washed gems sitting next to him. The beggar smiled and presented the king with another piece of fruit. The king, who I should mention was named Vikram, sat back and the treasurer stepped forward. The treasurer said that they needed some answers. They wouldn't be taking any more of his fruit until he told them what was going on. Vikram looked at the treasurer and nodded. Good job using his big boy voice. The beggar didn't address the treasurer, but looked directly at Vikram, the king. It's just that he had a quest. That drew the king's look for a second, and the beggar smirked. A quest that only the bravest, most powerful man in the realm could complete, and at the end of which, he would be given untold cosmic powers. I'll do it! Vikram bellowed. The treasurer facepalmed. The beggar nodded. Excellent. On the last night of the waning moon, come to the great cemetery after dark. I'll be waiting for you under the fig tree. There, I will tell you of this quest. Vikram nodded. The beggar asked for the strongest, bravest man in the world, and he got him. Vikram would be there. It was the last night of the waning moon, and Vikram was getting ready. Did he need a sword? He should bring a sword. The treasurer was still trying to talk him out of it. He, the king, was meeting a sinister-looking stranger in the cemetery after dark. Alone. Did he think this was a good idea? The king cocked an eyebrow. Did he think this was a good idea? No, he knew this was a good idea. Like the beggar said, Vikram was the strongest, bravest man in the world, and all that stuff about untold cosmic power? What did he have to worry about? But as the king walked through the cemetery after dark, eyes looking out for him from the darkness, creatures rustling in the night, he swallowed hard. Huh, maybe he had a little bit more to worry about than he thought. He approached the fig tree and the strange beggar standing by his lantern. Vikram nodded while glancing from side to side. He totally wasn't scared, but if the beggar could just tell him what the quest was so he could get out of the cemetery as quickly as possible, that would be great. The beggar nodded. Absolutely. 
If you wish to complete this quest, just go south of here. You'll leave the cemetery and find yourself in the dark forest. Eventually, you'll find a sisu tree with a body hanging from it. A corpse. Bring it here. The king took a deep breath. Well, couldn't back out now or else he would have to confront the idea that he might not be the bravest, strongest man in the world. He nodded to the smiling beggar and started marching south. Not running. Not running because he definitely wasn't scared. Just walking away as quickly as possible. King looked at the bloated, decaying body hanging from the tree. There were a couple of questions that came up on the walk here, like how did the beggar know that there was going to be a body in the tree? And why did Vikram, the king, wear a silk shirt on a quest? I mean, he didn't know he would have a corpse slung over his shoulder for an hour or so on the walk back. He sighed and started to climb the tree. The sword that he thought would be for slaying monsters or brigands made short work of the rope holding the man in the tree. But Vikram nearly fell to the ground himself when the body screamed. He leapt from the tree and went to the neck, trying to loosen the rope to get the man, who was somehow still alive, air. He rubbed the man's limbs to get blood flowing, but they were already cold. The man was dead. So why was he laughing? Vikram pursed his lips. Oh, it was a Vitala. Vitala is often mistranslated to mean vampire, but it's really more of a spirit that takes possession of a corpse. You can't really even call it a zombie, because a lot of the times the body that it reanimates is not its body, but one that it found. While in the possession of a corpse, the corpse doesn't decay, and also unlike a zombie, it's not some shambling, mindless, undead creature but a very smart and often prophetic monster. Vikram looked at the corpse. Its hands and feet were bound, and even though the monster inside it was laughing, it couldn't do more than ruin Vikram's nice shirts. He could buy more shirts. He had recently come into a lot of fruit-related wealth. He reached down to grab at it, but just before he touched the monster, it was gone. It was back in the tree, hanging, laughing at him. The king sighed, climbed, cut the rope again, and, once again, found the Vitala on the ground. This time, the creature didn't move. He gripped the dead man by his hands and lifted him over his shoulder. The Vitala didn't move. Didn't fight, didn't kick. It just stayed silent. For about 15 seconds. Oh, king, it said. To amuse you on this journey, I will tell you a story. Listen. Vikram shook his head. He really didn't want to hear a story. And this thing's breath was horrible. The Vitala continued, Hear me, O king! I will tell my story, on the condition that if you know the answer to the question at the end of it, I shall go back to my tree and resume hanging. If you do not know the answer to the question, I shall come with you. But if you know the answer to the question and do not say it, your head shall explode. Vikram cocked an eyebrow, like in a mind-blown sort of way? The Vitala said yes and no, mostly no. His mind will be blown because it would literally be blown up. Vikram shook his head, then he definitely did not want to hear the story. The Vitala ignored him and started talking. (laughs) 
prince saw her bathing by the river. But not in like a sketchy way. Probably. The prince and the woman met eyes and both smiled. The prince's minister, who was, I guess, also watching women bathe, because okay, saw the woman and so much more. In a matter of minutes, she was gone, ushered away by her servants. The prince dropped to the ground, forlorn. She was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, and she disappeared, never to be seen again. The minister looked at him, and then back to the river. Really? He didn't see that? She told him exactly where to find her. Now, a lot of this is based on wordplay that doesn't exactly translate, but the minister told the prince that when the woman put the lotus in her ear, it meant that she lived in the kingdom of a king named Ear Lotus, which his actual name sounds way different than Ear Lotus. When she folded it to make it look like a row of teeth, it meant that she was the daughter of a man named Bite. And since the minister knew everyone of every city, he knew that in such city, there was an ivory carver with the nickname Bite, a rich man. When she put the lily on her head, well, okay, this part was so obvious that he felt like he didn't even need to say it. Her name was Lily. How was I supposed to get all that from a woman putting a lotus in her ear, biting it, and then putting a flower on her head? The prince asked. How were you not? The minister replied. Whatever, let's just get going. And so they did. When they arrived at the city, they still had an issue. They didn't know where Bite lived. As luck would have it, eventually they chanced on a person who not only knew Bite, but was a servant of his daughter. But she couldn't serve her mistress now, because her dress was stolen. You see, her son was a gambler, and he had gambled away in a fit of, up, up, up. the prince held up his hand, we're already two stories deep, and this isn't Inception. Here's money for a new dress. We need your help. A day in a new dress later, the woman was with Lily in the woman's room, whispering the message from the prince. My child, the prince and counselor have come to take you. Tell me what to do now. And Lily, who was in the process of smearing her hands with camphor, smacked the woman twice on the face. Once with one hand, once with the other. Well, this didn't go well the prince said when the old woman returned. Are you serious? The minister screamed. That went great. The prince said that their messenger was smacked in the face. How was that great? The minister grabbed the old woman's face. Look, look at it. See the 10 fingers of camphor smeared right on her face. That meant that the prince must wait 10 days before seeing her because the next 10 nights are bright with moonlight. The prince was suspicious Okay. He had trusted the minister this far, sure. Who wants dinner? For the next 10 days, they basically just hung out in the city and feasted with the old woman. They were obviously very critical to their own kingdom, since they could disappear for weeks on end while doing absolutely nothing. When the old woman returned after 10 days, she had another strike against her. By that, I mean an actual strike. This time, Lily had hit her on the chest with three fingers stained with red. When she returned that night, both she and the prince turned to the minister, who couldn't believe no one else saw the symbolism. Really? He had to explain everything? All right. The next three days were going to be dangerous. They shouldn't attempt to contact Lily. After three more days of feasting, where the prince sold off some of his walking around gold, the woman once again returned to Lily. Instead of beating her with coded messages, 
sat her down to yet another feast, where she was treated to wine for, quote, the whole day. It was in the evening that, from the streets, they heard a screaming. An elephant had escaped its stable and was stamping on people. Lily said that the woman couldn't very well leave via the streets. She had to go another way. After the rope let her down in the garden, where she climbed a tree, walked along the wall, and then climbed down another tree, the old woman was outside of the wall. Out of the path of the rampaging elephant, she went home. All your wishes are fulfilled, the minister boomed, when he learned of the feast packed with day drinking and threats of elephant violence. He paused. The prince spoke up. Look, I'm not going to keep doing this, like Holmes and Watson thing, where you tell me all these deeper meanings and I marvel. Out with it. The minister said that Lily had showed them the way. The prince could simply enter by the way the old woman had left. So, the prince started. The minister was saying that he should just surprise the woman in her bedroom because an unrelated elephant attack forced a servant to take a different route home. The minister nodded, beaming. Well, good enough for me, the prince yelled and started stretching for some tree climbing. As it turned out, Lily was expecting the prince. And when they saw each other, they both fell in love all over again. It's said that they were married, and the prince stayed there in secret for three days. But I don't know how much of it was that they were actually officially married in secret, or if the story just says they were married, because this translation was from the 1800s, and boldlerization was a real thing. Anyway, when the three days were up, the prince said he needed to go tell the guy he came here with that he wasn't, you know, apprehended and executed. Lily was suddenly very attentive. Huh, tell me more about this guy. Later on that day, when the prince was back with the minister, a messenger arrived from Lily. She had cooked rice and dates for her new husband's friend, and only her husband's friend. Remember, the prince was eating dinner with his wife tonight, so he shouldn't eat here at all. Seriously, don't eat that. The prince nodded at the servant waited for her to leave, and, of course, didn't listen. What could be the harm in one small bite? He tossed a date into the air, but the minister caught it. He pointed to the dead dog on the floor. Bad dates. The prince, at first shocked that the food from his wife was poisonous, looked to the ground, and then to the table with the dates. Wait, the dog couldn't get up there. How did... Did he feed the dog knowing that it was poisonous? Just so he could do this Indiana Jones reveal here? (laughs) The minister shrugged. Guilty. Anyway, he was at risk. The prince's wife was clearly jealous of what they had. And what is that exactly? The prince said. Is that defined in the story? Or are we just going to roll with Lily being upset about our connection without explanation? Without explanation then? Cool. It was a day later when the local king... King Earlotus, well, his young son died. And the minister had a plan. Go to Lily. Get her drunk with wine, so drunk that it's like she's dead. When she's out, take this three-pronged fork and brand her thigh. Then, steal her jewels and leave. The prince said that he didn't need her jewels. He had enough gold on him to buy weeks worth of feasting. 
Was the minister making this personal just because she, you know, tried to kill him? The minister asked the prince to trust him. The prince sighed. Well, the minister had gotten him this far. The least he could do was funnel so much wine into his secret wife that it was like she was dead, brand her, and then rob her. And he did do that. And that's why, a week later, when he was walking with the jewels, he was arrested. We'll learn why the prince was just casually flaunting the jewels after being so careful up to this point, but that will be right after this. The prince held up his hands. The jewels weren't his. The authorities looked at him. Yeah, I mean, he was dressed like a simple student. That was obvious. Also, the necklace belonged to a local merchant's daughter named Lily. She had been robbed last week, so they were looking for these pearls. The prince, who was actually kind of having fun playing around being someone who didn't own a tiger, said it was his master. His master gave it to him. When the police met the student's master in the forest, a humble hermit who didn't look anything like a prince's minister, the man nodded. Yes, yes, he had found the necklace. But wait, there's more. He had found it. Wait for it. Pausing, pausing for effect, from a witch. The police gasped, and the minister smiled. He had the room, or forest clearing, where he was pretending to be a roving hermit priest. He said that just last night, he had been walking through the forest, where he saw not one witch, but twelve. They were dancing in circles around a fire. You know, witch stuff. Wait, witch stuff, the guard said, and then cracked a smile. The hermit shook his head and continued, Anyway, in the circle, one of the witches dragged something to her master, and the hermit, watching from the shadows, saw that it was a boy, the king's late son. Then, as in the second worst Indiana Jones movie, the witch reached into the chest and brought out the boy's heart for her mistress. The hermit said he couldn't stand for that, so he confronted the leader. The witches fled, but their leader loomed. The hermit wasn't scared, though. He had prepared a magical spell. And, gripping her pearl necklace, the fork in his hand grew red hot. He branded her on the thigh, and she ran off. He gave the pearls to his student to sell, because, you know, even hermits need to eat. The police confiscated the pearl necklace, and an old woman, an employee who was trusted by the family, confirmed that it was Lily's. The police went to the king, who demanded that Lily be arrested and searched. When it was discovered that she did, indeed, have the brand on her, it was decided that she must be a witch. In a honestly convenient development, the king ended up asking the hermit which punishment was fitting for a witch. And he said that while her crime was horrendous, she didn't kill the boy, only mutilated his body, so she shouldn't be executed. She should just be stripped naked and forced out into the dark forest. That night, she was picked up by the prince and his counselor as they rode back home through the forest. And, very importantly, the story says that the prince lived most happily with her. How she felt, living with the two men who had completely ruined her life and driven her from her home, is curiously not mentioned. The cherry on top of this tragedy pie is that when Lily's parents went looking for her in the forest, and couldn't find her, 
they assumed that she had been eaten by wild beasts in the field. So the mother and father, knowing that their daughter had been innocent and that they had been a party to her death, died of a broken heart themselves. And now, the Vitala, the talking corpse, said to King Vikram, his means of conveyance through a different dark forest. A question, a riddle. Remember, if you know the answer, you must say it. If you answer correctly, I go back. If you're stumped, then I come with you. But if you lie and pretend you know the answer, then your head will explode. The question is this. Who is responsible for the deaths of Lily's parents? King Vikram said that that was easy. King Earlotus. The Vitala paused. Hold up, just like that? Why? The other three did it. Are crows to blame when the geese eat all the rice? King Vikram said that those three were not to blame. The counselor was right to do his master's business. Lily and the prince were madly in love and didn't think about what they were doing. The king, though, and he knows from personal experience, had law books and spies to find out the truth. And he was so caught up about the death of his son that he condemned Lily without being fair. He acted without thinking. He is to blame. So, how about it? How'd I do? In a moment, the burden on his back was gone. The king sighed. Oh, yeah. If he got it right, the guy went back to his old tree. Cool. Well, it looked like he got the question right. Now he just had to walk all the way back to the tree. Ah, the king shook his fist in the air and cursed his own intelligence and wisdom and, for good measure, his general attractiveness and abs. You know, your abs had nothing to do with me coming back to the tree. It kind of felt like you were just bragging, the Vitala said to King Vikram, as the king climbed the tree, cut the corpse down, and hefted him back on his shoulder. They were just a few steps away from the tree the next time, when the Vitala started talking. Hey, hey, want to hear a story? It's a long walk. I could tell you a story. No, no, please no, not again, Vikram replied. I need a question answered. All right, this one is about a dead girl that was brought to life by three lovers and whose wife she should be. Is the answer who she wants to marry? Vikram asked. <laughs> the Vitala laughed. This is folklore. It almost never is. Okay, so the, we're not going to go too deep into the story. Basically, three Brahmin youths wanted to marry a girl and she didn't want to marry just one and hurt the feelings of the other two. So they just hung around, quote, feasting on the beauty of her face. Coral, the girl, fell sick and died. One man became a monk and found a magical spell that brought the dead back to life. One took her bones and dipped them in the Ganges, and the third just slept in the cemetery with her ashes. Coral was brought back to life, either by the magical spell or the dipping of her bones in the river, but definitely not by the guy who slept next to her ashes. At the end of the story, Vikram ruled that the one who deserved to marry her was the one who slept with her ashes, because that's something a husband would do. The other two are merely something fathers and brothers would do. With that, the Vitala disappeared again. Vikram sighed. Looks like he was really getting his steps in today. All right, he began his walk back to the tree.
If you haven't realized yet, this is an anthology loosely connected by King Vikram trudging to the tree and back, and each time hearing a story. I've read that, in some places, this is seen as an inspiration for 1001 Nights, though I don't know how reputable that claim is. Anyway, maybe we'll go through all the stories at some point. But right now, we're really only focused on the framing narrative, that of King Vikram, the beggar, and the Vitala. We'll jump back in at story 24. Honestly, I'm just a corpse going for some rides on your back, the Vitala said, and I'm tired. I can't imagine how you feel. I'm impressed, though. So, I'm going to give you a hard one. It had been a long night, and King Vikram was sweating, his arms and legs burning. His wisdom and intelligence had been tested from every angle, and even though he was talking to an evil spirit, he had to admit that he was forced to think about things he had never thought about before about his responsibility as a king and a leader. After tonight, he would sleep for a week, but he was going to change some things. All right, so story 24, the Vitella started. A father and son were walking through the forest when they spotted some footprints. They looked down. Huh, these are small and, quote, clean cut. They must belong to women. The father slapped the son on the back. When they found the women... He would let his son choose which one he wanted, and then he would marry the girl. Really? Vikram asked. I know, just it's part of the story, the Vitella replied. Anyway, they had no way of knowing that one of the women was recently single, because her husband, a king, had been brutally murdered, covering her escape from a destitute city of robbers they chanced upon. They did all this fleeing their own kingdom because of a family coup. The son looked at the footprints. Well. He picked the one with smaller feet, obviously. She was the younger one. He chose her, and his father could have the other. The father shook his head. No, the young man's mother was the only one for him. And she's dead. It's time to move on, Dad, the young man said, and quoted a poem. It said, What fool will go into a house? Tis a prisoner's abode, unless a buxom wife is there, looking down the road. The father shrugged. That rhymed, so it must be right. Also, he wasn't just looking for an excuse to move on, but wanted his son's tacit permission. All right. He wasn't picky. He'd take the big-footed one. They followed the footprints, tiny and big alike, before finding the women in a clearing, where they comforted the panicked pair, saying that they were gentlemen who, yes, had divvied the mother and daughter up between them already, but they would speak kind words. And they did and the pairs were married. There was a bit of a hitch, though. The widowed mother had small feet, and the daughter large. The son couldn't simply go back on his offhanded comment that he made while inspecting footprints, so the son was married to the woman the age of his father, and the father was married to the girl the age of his son. The father's son was his father-in-law, and the father was the son's son-in-law. Anyway, they both had kids, the Vitala continued. A lot of them. The question if you choose to accept it, and you accept it pretty much automatically by hearing it, is this. What is the relation between the children of the two couples? There was silence. Vikram tried to work it out in his head. All right, were they aunts and uncles? But how could you be both a niece and a nephew and an aunt and uncle at the same time? Oh my gosh. 
he didn't know. <gasps> he didn't know. He jumped up and down. It was over. He turned to the Vitala. High five, bud. Ooh, that was a bad idea. This guy was still decomposing. The corpse smiled. For listening to all these stories, for answering so correctly so many times, the king's reward was another story. The king blinked. Wait, what? The Vitala said that no one was supposed to ever get this far. He would get to hear one final story. Pay attention. This was an important one. There was once a couple who wanted a son. They wanted it so badly that they went to a sorcerer, a tantric sorcerer, who told them they could have not one boy, but two. And these children could be theirs if they consented to letting them be educated under the sorcerer. The parents struck that bargain. And, as most bargains with a sorcerer, this one went badly, but not for the parents. When the boys were still young, they were sent off to live with a sorcerer. One of the boys wasn't taught anything. He was treated well, but kept separate from his brother. The other, the other had a more difficult life. He was naturally more intelligent. Maybe that's why the sorcerer chose him. He chose him to relentlessly drill through all the magic, all the knowledge of his library. When the boy collapsed from exhaustion, the sorcerer's cane across his back woke him back up. He came to realize, this boy, that he wasn't going to make it out of the sorcerer's home. Years passed. He learned, accidentally, that his brother had been sent home, that the sorcerer had told the parents of a terrible accident. But, silver lining, they still had one son, the twin that had nothing but good things to say about the sorcerer. They would never know what happened to the other one. The day the boy, now a young man, died, it wasn't from exhaustion or malnourishment or disease, though it easily could have been, but from the knife of a sorcerer. He was too tired to fight anymore. When the sorcerer sacrificed the boy, he gained dark, arcane powers. But that wasn't enough. Vikram rolled his eyes. Is the question this time who is responsible for the boy's death? Because, uh, it might be the sorcerer. Vikram, the Vitala said. He was serious this time. He is waiting for you now. The one who killed the boy. The one who sacrificed me. He's back in the cemetery. He's waiting to do the same to you. It shouldn't have lasted this long. This night, the Vitala continued. I shouldn't be telling you any of this. I was bait. After he gained the power for my sacrifice, I didn't get to leave. I didn't get to rest. I was transformed into a revenant, a monster of the night. A Vitala forced to do his bidding. Even in death, I wasn't free. Like I said, it shouldn't have lasted this long. But you knew all the answers to all my questions. In there, somewhere, is a good king. A king who knows what's right. If he survives the night, be that king. That's why the Vitala asked the questions. To find the man who could, once and for all, stop the sorcerer. Vikram stopped. If the Vitala was right, then they should stop right here, run away. The corpse shook his head. That wouldn't work. The sorcerer's power was too great. He would find them. 
There was another way, though. If you had any doubt that the beggar, secretly a tantric sorcerer, was a bad guy, let me convince you with the following scene. The sorcerer had lit a ring of candles made from human fat, and within that ring had poured a ring of yellowed, ground-up human bones. Inside that ring, he had marked the ground with human blood. The beggar smiled and took the corpse as the king approached it. He seated the corpse at the edge of the circle, and when he pulled away from it, a young man was in its place. The boy, the student. The sorcerer said that the king's reward for his trials was at hand. All he had to do was bow down in the center of the ring and make obeisance before the gods. If he did that, he would be granted supernatural powers. Vikram huh? shrugged. The menacing sorcerer told him to lay down in blood. Why not? He laid down on his back. All right, let's get those supernatural powers flowing. The sorcerer's side, that's... It's not... Vikram snapped his fingers. Got it, no. He knew. He lay down on his side, with an arm propping up his head. This good? How? How could that be good? Look, it's been a long night, and my human candles are getting low. Just lie face down on the ground, the sorcerer demanded. Wait, like, a headstand? I can't do a headstand, I'm a king. I don't have the core for that, Vikram protested. Okay, the sorcerer was just gonna have to show him, because he didn't even know what obeisance meant. Probably a made-up word, the sorcerer growled. Okay, okay, first, obeisance isn't a made-up word. It's simply a show of submission. Second, one quick demonstration. And then can we please get on with this? It's been a super long night and I'm tired too. The king agreed. The sorcerer bowed low. And in one motion, the king cut off his head. The boy, the corpse, smiled. The plan had worked. As the sorcerer's head rolled, Vikram cocked his own head to the side. Huh, that was easy. But what the sorcerer was doing, his plan, couldn't be undone. A mist all around them shimmered with gold. A sacrifice had been made. A cacophony rose up from all around, from the nagas and ghosts and demons of the night, reveling in a dark carnival of cruelty, surprised and excited by this turn of events. In an instant, they were silent. Different versions have different gods showing up at this point. Whether it was Indra or Shiva, they asked the king what he wanted. And he looked at the Vitala. He said that he wanted this night to mean something. He said he wanted freedom. He said that the stories told on this night, all 25 of them, framing narrative included, he wanted those to have power, to give freedom from curses if they were told in their entirety. It would be one small bit of hope in a dark world. One way to fight back against evil. A remedy so that a sorcerer couldn't hold a child in their sway forever. The deity nodded. That would be granted. Further, he would be known as a hero king and, upon his death, have the powers of a god. The king turned to the young man. The boy who had lived a short, tortured life, only to be trapped upon his death. 
there was one more request he had of the gods. He would have a second chance. The boy would keep his power, but his mind would be cleared from the pain of the past. The Vitala and the king didn't say a word as they walked from the cemetery. They didn't need to, also they had said a lot of words to each other that night. For the rest of King Vikram and the Vitala's life, King Vikram would be able to call on the Vitala anytime he needed help. Not as a servant or a slave, but as a friend. And for the rest of his days, the Vitala would rush to the aid of the man with enough wisdom, who had a pure enough heart that he was the one who answered the Vitala's questions and ended his imprisonment. When they reached the edge, the sun was rising on a new day. After an impossibly long night, the king clasped the boy on the shoulder, smiled, and went back to his throne, his city, and his monkey. The boy looked out upon the open road, for the first time that he could remember in his long, cursed life, he was free. That's the story of Batal Pashishi, or the 25 Tales of the Batal. It's a rare instance where the framing narrative is just as compelling as many of the stories. And if you'd like to look into the story, I posted many different versions on mythpodcast.com. The story is a really interesting one to me, especially 250 plus episodes in, because when I read about evil creatures, I always just assume they're basically just straight chaotic evil. That's what they are. And for a corpse, zombie, vampire, demon who hangs from trees in cemeteries... I feel like that would have been a pretty fair assumption. I mean, it certainly is by everyone in this story. But in the end, this story challenges that. In one version, we see that the creature that I would have just written off as evil is that way because they were warped by the pain of their past. And in the end, they were given a second chance. And through that second chance, they were able to help a great king do good. In that way, it's kind of inspiring. Anyway, next week, we're picking up the Robin Hood stories again. We have a new sheriff, new crew, and Robin has a new lease on life. A life that might not be as long as he hopes if he can't get away from those crossbows. If you didn't know it, Fictional is back. There are now three episodes in the feed. This week's episode is based on a short story from the 1930s about a man who checks into a hotel and becomes obsessed with a pale stranger who's moving from room to room. You can check it out at our new website, fictional.fm. If you'd like to support the show, there is also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a face blanket, a blanket for your face while you sleep that definitely isn't just a tiny blanket with an air hole hastily cut out of it, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that are, once again, not just blankets with holes cut in them. You can find more info on that at support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Siegbin from the Philippines. Now, the Siegbin is the world's worst pet, or the world's best pet, depending on your views regarding hunting humans and drinking their blood. Because, yeah, the Siegbin is a creature who's very into hunting humans and drinking their blood. And there's some debate on what exactly it looks like because it can shapeshift. Almost. 
it's like it read the manual on shapeshifting and just tossed it down halfway through because it got the gist of it. It doesn't need to read the whole thing. That's boring. For instance, it'll turn into a crow with grasshopper legs or a dog with kangaroo feet or a gigantic bat with floppy ears. In addition to the blood of human children, the creatures eat charcoal and apparently smell so bad that one whiff will make you vomit. If you're wondering how bad the farts are of a creature that smells so bad that you vomit, well, I wasn't, but someone has wondered that. Apparently, the flatulence of the Siegbin will kill you. They're widely considered to be the pets of another famous creature from the Philippines we've talked about, the Aswang. Apparently, the Siegbin brings good luck to anyone who manages to tame it. But with deadly flatulence, you have to wonder if that good luck is limited only to mythical monsters of the night. Regardless, don't try to tame it. In fact, if you're walking through the forest and you see a crow with grasshopper legs and you aren't vomiting already from the smell, consider yourself lucky. Also, run! That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. I want to say thanks to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com legends and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.